When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn how to take back control of your mental health and live your happiest and healthiest life. In this episode, I interview therapist Alyssa Mankow on dealing with trauma and PTSD, what EMDR therapy is and how it can help overcome trauma signs of secondary trauma and how to heal, and the difference between big T trauma and little t trauma. Alyssa also shares some great advice on how to know when it's time to end a friendship that may be toxic, and how to do it, and how to deal with any guilt. Alyssa is a therapist based in Los Angeles, California. Alyssa worked with the Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Clinic at Harbor, UCLA, with the Child and Family Guidance Center and as an independent licensed contractor with Counseling for Kids. She has experience providing therapy in the outpatient and residential setting. Her work in the residential setting includes providing trauma treatment for individuals that have endured the pain of childhood abuse and exposure to gang and community violence. She has nine years of experience treating depression, anxiety, trauma, issues with self-esteem, body image, and the inner child. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and find some answers and solutions to whatever you may be struggling with. During this crisis, it's especially important to pay attention to your mental health, and I want to make sure I'm helping however I can. So send us any questions and concerns and follow me on social media to get daily mental health tips, techniques, and strategies. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Also, please consider leaving a five-star review and keep sharing episodes with friends and family. Lastly, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast and what you are learning and loving. So keep sharing and keep tagging me. Now on to today's episode. Before we begin this episode, I want to check in with all of you. How are you doing? How are you holding up? At a time like this, it's vital to focus on your mental hygiene and health. Anxiety, stress, worry, fear, all of these can really weaken your immune system and affect how your brain functions. If you find you are struggling with your mental health or you just can't seem to feel happy, then it's time for mind management. It's time to detox your brain. That's where my new 21-day brain detox app called Switch comes in. It's designed to help you find and eliminate the root of whatever is causing your mental distress and help you replace it with a new healthy neural network and habit. It's just five steps that you do each day for 21 days and will take you about 15 to 30 minutes. This is a daily mind management plan to manage your toxic stress. The program has over 30 years of research backing it up and just went through clinical trials again with amazing results. 
And right now, a three-month subscription is on sale for 50% off. Just go to theswitch.app or look for Switch on Your Brain on iTunes or Google Play. The link will also be in the show notes. Alyssa Mankow, I am so excited to have you in the studio with me today. Thank you so much for coming to chat with me about your incredibly important work. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I know I am too. And there's so many things that we could talk about. You know, you you cover a lot in your work and I'm going to hone in on certain things, but I know that our conversation is just going to grow and grow. So I'm excited to see where it goes. But before we start, can you tell my listeners and viewers something about you that's not in your bio? And you know, what motivates sure. you? What drives you? And Sure. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker located in Los Angeles, California. Prior to starting my private practice, I was working in the community mental health sector for about 10 years, where I specialized working with people who were in gangs and people who were, you know, a lot of their mental health issues were really um, very much related to kind of like socioeconomic statuses and the systems that were affecting them. Mm. So that's a lot of the work that I was doing before private practice. You know, what drives me and what motivates me is my compassion for human beings, for human connection. And what really keeps me going in this field is being able to see a lot of people heal from their traumas and Mm. being able to see my clients just, you know, have these changes that positively affect their lives and their relationships with others and the relationships with their children. I I really love Mm. to see that, that positive growth in people. Oh, that's lovely. I'm so glad to hear that you started off by saying your first few years were working with gangs and with people in challenging socioeconomic. Can we start there? Can you just talk a little bit about that? You know, I come from South Africa and I grew up in, I was born in Zimbabwe. So I grew up, I worked 38 years ago. I started my work and for 25 years, I worked in the pre-apartheid transition and in the post-apartheid era in some of the worst of the worst areas, helping with trauma, helping with victims, helping with people with learning issues. So that area is, it's so important. And, I, and I'd love to hear what you, your experience and your advice and, you know, just talk about that, your, talk about that a little bit. Oh, okay. Well, that actually goes a little bit into why I started my private practice. So when you're working in community mental health, right, there's so much red tape about the type of treatment that you can provide to to your mm. clients, right? There's these things called evidence-based practices, oh, yeah. which I think are which I think are great, but I don't think they address a lot of the macro level issues that are affecting mm. people. I don't think mm. they, it doesn't address oppression. So I remember working with clients. Mm. Yes. So I remember working with clients and being told, I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. I can't do EMDR with them, even though I want to do EMDR. I just can't because their insurance doesn't cover it, things like that. So that's why I wanted to go into private practice so that I could be able to provide that work without Mm. all of the red tape. Mm. But, you know, a a lot of what I'm noticing is because the traumas, and I I know we're going to get into this, a lot of the times that the traumas that people experience, they're they're kind of like little T's in a way, Mm. right? It's it's Mm -hmm. kind of like, it's kind of like the neglect from the teachers or the neglect from certain institutions, things that have become so normal. Oftentimes people don't think that they have trauma or they don't think that they went through a trauma because what they've gone through has been so normalized in their communities. Isn't that so sad though? I mean, that's something that really does need to be addressed, that those things that are not normal, that we call little T's, that they've, they've got so used to them that they see them as yeah. normal, don't realize it's having that impact. So can, can you give some examples of that and, and some of the things that you did? To help address that? So for for this community in particular, right? 
Yes. Okay. So, but there are a lot of community violence. So some of the things that I did with that is providing a lot of psychoeducation and helping them understand that the symptoms that they're going through, like the irritability, the anger, the difficulty sleeping. And a lot of times there's like a a co-occurring disorder, Mm. like substance use and things like that. Mm. I help, I help them understand that this is a way to cope. And if you weren't doing these things, if you weren't engaging in substance use, what, what feelings do you think you would be feeling instead? So it's really, Mm. really helping them understand that their symptoms are a function of coping and a function of survival. Mm. It's, it's really important to help them understand that, you know, what, what's happening is survival mode and then teaching them to come at it from a very non-judgmental perspective. Mm, I love that. So you've hit on two mm-hmm. factors that totally zone mm-hmm. in on what I've totally believe in and mm-hmm. have seen in my research. And that's understanding and then not being mm-hmm. judgmental. So that understanding yeah. is a key component because I think, you know, and I love that you also said about the fact that we, you were restricted with, you had to use evidence-based practice. And there's so much we can talk around evidence-based stuff. But, <laughs> uh, and that's a, that'll be a conversation definitely you'll have one day. But it also worries me that you can't just go and say, okay, 10 steps for this and, you know, 10 little treatments and tick the boxes and you know mm-hmm. and, and like, yeah find find a little thought and then just replace it with this and maybe what you know if it hasn't gone after 10 sessions what's wrong with you we can't do that and and i've heard we you say in, no and i heard you say in a couple of your podcast interviews how we've got to look at the individual mm-hmm. and i got so excited because that's i keep saying those words in different ways mm-hmm. we've got to look at the individual as a case study as opposed to yes. and with their narrative as opposed to yeah. the symptoms and the checkbox and the label and the diagnosis yes uh, and I think so many people, while their intentions are well, you know, they're trying so hard to make therapy as efficient as possible. But when we do that, we miss the humanity. Mm, we miss, like, we miss the humanity amongst all of us. Mm, thank you. You know, yeah. I, you yeah. and I speak in the same language. I don't know how many times <laughs> I've said in the last few because I do so many mm-hmm. interviews and do so many Instagram lives. And one of the things that I've said mm-hmm. so much lately is we need to be human again. And this whole yes. COVID nineteen quarantine, which has brought us to our knees as a global humanity yeah. facing a common enemy I think it's brought our humanity back you know it's yes. starting to bring our humanity back I agree with you mm, definitely. it's like we're all connecting with each other again in different ways and deep meaningful connections mm. as well which is really really mm. interesting okay so you mentioned the little t's and the big t's so for for my audience would you mind just briefly defining those and just give an example Sure. So I, I do believe that these terms come from EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And trauma is basically categorized in two sections. One is called the big T's and one is called the little T's. The big T's are the very life-threatening events that people commonly think of when they hear the word trauma. It is a bad car accident. It is physical abuse, sexual assault, surviving a terrible earthquake or a tsunami. It's, it's, it's the events that threaten our safety and sense of well-being. And little T's are the events that we don't normally think of. These are the non-life-threatening events. So for example, exam- little T's are like, let's say a divorce or getting bullied at school or the way a teacher looked at you one day when you said the wrong answer in class. These are events that don't make us feel like our life is in danger, but they still overwhelm our capacity to cope. So those are like the ones in, in the social, in the socioeconomically challenged gang sort of environments that you were working in. The little T's are those things you we were speaking about that people think are normal, but they're not normal. It's the recurrent day-to-day bad yes. stuff. Absolutely. And people don't Absolutely. always realize that they're having an impact on their brain and their body and their mind. Do you mm-hmm. find that? Do you find that as a trend? Do you, what, what is the general trend that you're finding in relation to the little T's? I think the general thing that I'm finding is probably an increased tolerance for distress. Oh, wow. So like there's that, it's wow. that belief like, well, yeah, it's that belief like I can handle it. 
right? I went through mm. it. I lived it. I'm fine. Right. And I think mm. that has a lot to do with certain defense mechanisms like rationalization, intellectualization, even suppressing. So that's, mm. you know, it, it's that, it's that normalization. And I think oftentimes when people hear somebody's little tease, they think, oh, you're fine. Or everybody's been through that. Right. And, and when we do that, we minimize that person's experience. And when mm. we minimize that person's experience, we're teaching them to minimize their own experience. Mm, gosh. So, yeah. so, how do you, so how do you handle that? Because that's very powerful what you just said. I help them highlight the dissonance. Like it, like your thoughts around it are, it's fine. But I feel that the way you're feeling about it, it isn't matching up. Mm. Right? Like it, it seems like that when you actually talk about it, you're, you're not okay with it. Or the feelings mm. in your body. I help them do body scans, right? Like what is the feeling so in your good. body when you talk about it? And they might say that their, their heart is racing or their head hurts or there's a pit in their stomach. So I help them recognize mm. that dissonance. And it really is teaching people how to validate their own experience. Mm, I love what you're saying. And I, I'm going to ba- validate what you've mm-hmm. just said by some of the research <laughs> that I've just done. Where yes. we, we see with the QEEG. So I looked at the, I looked at the psychological, uh-huh. neurophysiological and the physiological. So we looked at all of it. And with the psychological, not just scales, but we also looked at narrative. And then I have a psychological scale that looks at the ability to self-regulate. So we looked at the person's psyche, the impact physiologically, like hormones, DNA, all that kind of stuff. And we looked at what's happening in the brain. And I, what you said, which is so true, people will go through something with a little tease and then they think okay well it's it's why I'm this is happening every day everyone around me is going through this so you know I just Mm -hmm. have to deal with it I got through it I'm still here I'm not dead I'm kind of coping but it's there Mm -hmm. they haven't processed it they've either suppressed or pushed it down now we can pick that up very very clearly because your non-conscious mind is where they're pushing it into so not the unconscious not the subconscious but the non-conscious and that's an area that I've studied for 38 years now and it's where all the intelligence is the belief systems that you talk about you talk about belief systems and you talk about thoughts being attached to belief systems. I loved how you said that. That's in your non-conscious mind. Now, that non-conscious mind is paralleled by the energy in the brain because the brain just responds. So we'll see so the suppression patterns in the brain. You can't see the thought, but you can see the response of the brain. So you can see someone suppressing. You can see how it's damaging people's memories, how it's damaging their emotions. It's unreal how you can see that. But you can cognitively, on a conscious level, be saying, oh, no, I'm fine. Like you just described with your with your patients. I'm fine. I'm kind of coping. They're going through life. They're doing whatever. But deep down inside, there's all this stuff. And eventually it plays catch up and something happens physically, mentally, or a combination. So that's what we've seen. How have you seen when someone lands in your therapy office, have they reached that point where it's accumulated and something's happened and they've exploded? Yes. Yeah, it's really common. And because... And I, I, you know, I help them understand also like displaced anger, mm. right? You know? <laughs> like things are accumulating, things are fine, things are fine, things are fine. And then all of a sudden, let's say somebody cuts them off on the freeway or somebody cuts in line at the grocery store and then they feel like their anger is so out of touch with the, with what actually happened. And so I help them yeah. understand the root, the roots of those feelings and what really has been kind of buried underneath for so long. Mm, and you can't bury it because they're like, volca- like volcanoes, they will erupt somewhere. Sometime. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so you then mentioned that you use EMDR, and I'm a tremendous fan of EMDR. I'm not an EMDR therapist, but I will send people for, I recommend people go for EMDR. And you have an incredible way of explaining it. So can you unpack it for us? What is EMDR? How does it work? And how's it going to help people? So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And before I go into what EMDR is, I'm going to talk a little bit about trauma so I can help people understand how EMDR works. Okay. So we talked about the big T's and the little T's. And oftentimes what happens when a person experiences a traumatic event, that event gets locked into the body on 
several different ways. So it gets locked into our conscious mind, right? Through nightmares, flashbacks, even our thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. Like people aren't safe. I can't trust anybody, things like that. It also gets locked into the body. Mm -hmm. So we might be more tense. We might be more alert. We might be more hypervigilant. And it also just like gets locked into us emotionally. So we might feel more sad or we might feel more confused, things like that. So the trauma gets locked into us in so many different levels and ways that talk therapy alone, just talking about what you went through, while that's helpful for some people, it's it's not enough. We have mm. to we have to dig deep into the body's experience of mm. the trauma. So what EMDR is, it's not a talk therapy at all. It utilizes your eye movements going back and forth to help you reprocess the experience that you went through. So I know it sounds like really no, interesting no, no. if you've never had EMDR. <laughs> I know, but it's so yeah, scientific. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that, that, if I may yeah, just interrupt for a yeah. second, that those eye, that yeah. eye movement works with the frequencies in the brain. It works with your alpha, beta, theta, yes. gamma, all yes. the, the different frequencies, and it actually helps to kind of release what's the tension that's yeah. in your body because it all works together. So it's very yeah. scientific, yeah. So those eye movements, right, they seem to mimic what's happening in REM sleep where your eyes are rapidly moving back and forth. So it's, it's, it's mimicking that. That's called the bilateral stimulation when your eyes are going back and forth. And the idea is when it's, when it's doing that, it begins to kind of unlock certain memories, feelings, mm. thoughts, beliefs that are attached and associated with your traumatic event. Mm. So it allows you to have exposures in very, very brief doses. Mm, and the great so thing good. about... Yes. So the great thing about EMDR too is if you're feeling overwhelmed or if you're feeling like, oh my gosh, this memory just came up during EMDR, this feeling came up during EMDR, you know, as the client, you are more than welcome to control the pace and say, hey, I need to stop. I need to take a break. Mm. But it really is brief exposures using your eye movements, Mm. brief exposures to the memories. Be, so that's so your eyes are going to stimulate. So basically, that stimulation because yeah. you because you're using. Can you talk about like how you stimulate? Me personally, I use the tactile ones. Okay. So yeah, Very so they nice. yeah, so people hold these like buzzers in their in their right hand and one in their left hand, and then it just kind of buzzes rapidly between each hand. And then I have my clients just sit up on the couch very comfortably, and I have them close their eyes, and then the buzzing starts, and then the memories and the thoughts and the feelings that they start they start coming at the client's pace. Mm. So it's really, yeah, it's a really beautiful thing to watch. So they're, they're using this stimulation, using the five senses, using that, that yeah. stimulation that will send the energy waves through to the brain as well. And then the auditory yeah. too. So, so in these different ways, there's also the lights, isn't there, that you can look at? Yeah, there are, there are several ways that therapists do EMDR. And I think it's really important too for the therapist and the client to talk about what feels most comfortable for them. So there's the one where the therapist can just literally use their fingers back and forth and wave them in front of the client. And the client follows the therapist's fingers. Mm -hmm. There's the buzzers that I was talking about. There's audio. So you wear headphones and then you hear a click on each ear very rapidly. Mm -hmm. And then there's like a a light bar that I think a lot of therapists are in Mm -hmm. favor for. And then it kind of, you, the client watches the light move back and forth. So all of those are using that that quantum mm-hmm. energy stimulation into the brain, and then it's 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 actually activating the thinking and feeling and choosing, and it's activating the thoughts behind that and bringing it to the forefront. And so, do you find it brings a rush of thoughts forward? What does it look like for a client who's sitting with you? Is it a rush of thoughts? Is it one or two things? Is it different for each person? And do they talk about it? What is the process? 
That's a really good question. It really is different for each person, but oftentimes, you know, what you see are that people will start to remember a little bit more about the event. They might just say, oh, I remember the refrigerator that was there at the time that it happened. And they might start to go into description about the color of the refrigerator, the magnets, just things like that. And then all of a sudden they might say like, I have this stuff that I'm not safe. It's not uncommon for the client to begin to feel physical sensations in that moment. Like I'm feeling really cold. I'm feeling really Mm -hmm. small. I'm feeling really hot. My neck is starting to hurt. It's not uncommon for them to start to feel physical sensations that were present at the time of the traumatic event, but have just been very much suppressed. Mm. Yeah, because as you're building that memory, you build Mm -hmm. the information because you literally build that physical memory in the brain. This is some of the work that I've also done. And so you're building the memory the information and the emotions. So when mm-hmm. it's suppressed, you're going to pull back the information and the emotion, but you also build in your body state at the time. So if you've got a, a flu or, as you say, if you're cold or you hot or you were physically mm-hmm. sore in some way, you're quite right. That's mm-hmm. also attached. So when you call the memory up, everything comes. Everything, it. yes. Mm-hmm. Everything yeah. comes up, which is amazing. That's so interesting. As you know, everyone is facing challenges with the recent virus pandemic. From stress, financial sickness and quarantines, there's not a lot of people who haven't been touched by it. One of the highest risk factors is a weakened immune system. And a lot of what affects that weakened system is determined by your gut health. Gut issues aren't just about bloating and indigestion. They can be the difference between whether you get sick or stay well. To help out, BioOptimizers is giving away a free bottle of their patented proteolytic probiotic P3OM until the end of this month. As you know, I'm a big fan of P3OM and I've talked about it multiple times on this show. P3OM also does something no other probiotic can claim. It has a patent filing that explicitly talks about its research around antiviral capabilities. Go to www.p3om.com forward slash leaf free. That's p3om.com forward slash l-e-a-f-f-r-e-e all one word you will automatically get access to your unique coupon code to claim your free bottle this is limited to one per household and this offer is only available at www.p3om.com forward slash leaf free the link and offer details will also be in the show notes this is fascinating. And you find it's very successful for patients. Is that correct? You find it very yes. successful. Does everyone do it or do you find it's only a certain type of person? Is it, Do you recommend it for everyone? What is your feeling about application and use of EMDR? I truly believe that anybody can benefit from EMDR, but I also think that it depends on what stage there are they are in in their therapeutic process. So for example, if they don't have a lot of coping skills and if they, you know, get overwhelmed very easily, I don't think that EMDR would be the right tool for them. I think it would be really really necessary to help them in building their self-regulation skills first because EMDR can be a very overwhelming experience. I don't see that only certain types of people can benefit from EMDR, ask for EMDR. I've seen a wide range of people come and seek services for for EMDR. That's really good. I love mm-hmm. that answer. So basically what I'm hearing you say a lot is it's a great tool to unlock, but you have to know how to self-regulate. Mm-hmm. And that's where working with someone yes. as opposed to doing it on your own is mm-hmm. recommended. I heard you say Absolutely. I've heard you say that before. It's better to be with a therapist. Yeah, because you know, 
part of EMDR during the bilateral stimulation when you're doing the brief exposure, I imagine if you're doing it by yourself, the moment a, a feeling or a thought starts to come, you might stop. Right. Uh, but as very good. <laughs> But as therapists who are trained in EMDR, we, we'll notice that you're starting to feel discomfort because we're watching you, even though your eyes are closed. And the, we're do, when you're doing the tappers and your eyes are normally closed, we're still watching your movements. We're watching changes in your face. We're watching changes in your, your, your skin tone. We're just seeing everything come up. So we don't stop the moment we see, oh, something shifted. We let it keep going and we let it keep mm. going and we let it keep going for the whole shift to follow through. Mm, that's fantastic and then you help them with coping with whatever because that could lead to a breakdown mm -hmm. or it could lead to some really traumatic thing coming up then you've got to be able to manage that so that yes yeah so you don't do it for long periods of time it's brief periods of time each treatment yes okay absolutely and then i know a question we've had from from listeners before about emdr is that is it an ongoing thing or is it a is there a sort of limited time span that you use it for or is it just up to the individual it really is up to the individual. Like I will have some clients, for example, that I do individual therapy with, and some sessions will do EMDR and some sessions we won't. I have clients who strictly come in for EMDR and that's it. And EMDR, the, the time length that it takes to do EMDR, it really does depend on each individual person. But here's how we know when we're done. Because I know that's oftentimes- That's good. This is, <laughs> yeah. People want to know, you know, when, when is are it we done? done? I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When are we done? <laughs> This is when we know that we're done. So at the beginning of the EMDR process, we help identify what is the memory that we want to target. And then we do together kind of like assessment of how, how much distress do you experience when you think of this memory? Sometimes it's a seven and eight and nine or 10, like at the highest. And then we're done when the distress around the memory, both in your thinking and in your feelings part of you, go down to a zero. Mm, that's so good. That's so they've got... Wow, that's fantastic. Oh, wow. You yeah. explained that so well. That's, that makes it, you know, it, it gives people a beginning and an end. It gives people a, a good understanding yeah. as well of, of where you're going. Because we yes. do need to know where we're going, don't we? We, we may not know the pathway, yeah. but it's nice to, and even if that changes along the way, at least there's a, a focus point, which is amazing. Now, I've heard you talk about the inner child and the mother issues, father issues. Can you, mm -hmm. can you dive into that? Because I think that's you know, it's important. I mean, it's important that we understand that. It's also thrown around a lot. So it's a word that's it kind is. of, yeah, and you see it a lot on social media and, you know, deal with your inner child. And can, can you define that and dive into that and just elaborate a little bit in terms of mother issue, father issue, and shame, poor mothers and fathers. I mean, I'm a mother. I've got four kids. Sometimes you can, you know, you could think, wow, all the stuff that I've done and, and you know, just to, <laughs> from bo both sides, you know, to how do you as a child, as a mother, but can, if you can talk, because we're all dealing with our pasts all the time. So if you wouldn't mind explaining mm -hmm. that. Yeah. So I definitely don't want any of the parents to take offense. No, but... no, no. But you've got to know this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, every, everyone's a child of someone. So everyone's got that's that. That's so true. That's mm -hmm. very true. The inner child really is the younger, the psychological younger parts of ourselves that hold the experiences of our youth. It holds our happiness and our disappointments and our traumatic experiences. It's the part of us that, you know, oftentimes are responding to the events that are happening around us today, especially when we're triggered. The mother wound and the father wound, um, it's really symbolic of our attachment with our parents, right? Mm. So if our parents weren't there for us or if our parents were emotionally neglectful, let's say if your mother was emotionally neglectful and she wasn't there for you, you know, you tend to develop something called a mother wound. And the same thing goes for a father. And we see those wounds oftentimes in adulthood 
come up in our interpersonal relationships. So it's the type of partners we pick. It's the type of people that we liken ourselves to, or it's even just the way that we view ourselves and the way that we treat ourselves. Oftentimes, negative coping skills or the negative interactions that we have with others or ourselves can truly be traced back to our our inner child wounds. Mm, So well explained. So if someone's got, let's say, a mother or a father wound, let's say you have a scenario of a father who really loves their children, but they they weren't very well mothered or fathered. So they've maybe grown up and they don't father their children or mother their children quite like they should because of, you know, how things epigenetically perpetuate styles of parenting. So you don't know, you don't want to do it, but there's certain things that maybe that's all you understand, maybe over-disciplinarian or too harsh. It doesn't mean you don't love your child. I know there's Mm -hmm. the cases of pure neglect and pure abuse. I'm talking more the more subtle stuff because I think that's almost more common, the more subtle stuff where you can perpetuate a pattern in your parenting style that you look back and think, oh my gosh, I mean, I know I've done it myself. I'm doing what my mother did and you catch yourself and you change Mm -hmm. when you're doing. So what about those situations where perhaps there's been this subtle father who loves a child, but is over-disciplined or who hasn't been as connected, but that doesn't mean they don't love, but there just hasn't been that ability to really connect. How does the wounded child deal with that? Could you walk us through an example? Yeah. So let's say the wounded child acknowledges that that's what happened to them. I think, first of all, they have to acknowledge what's happened to them and how it affects them. Cause I do believe that we can't feel what we're not aware of. Right. Love so it. we have to, mm-hmm. we have to be aware and we have to acknowledge what happened to us and how it made it made us feel. And then we want to tend to those, those emotional wounds. We want to identify what did we feel when it happened? If my feelings could talk, what would they say? Mm, I like that. And if my feelings could talk, what would they say? Yeah. Yeah. Like if the sadness in the pit of my stomach had words, what would it say right now? Mm -hmm. And we want to hear it out. We want to create a dialogue with it. And so some of the things that we can do is just kind of like a free flowing stream of consciousness, identify what it would say. And what would you like to say back to it? Mm. Now, how would you like to nurture it? How would you like to comfort it? What was something that you needed to hear from your parent during that time? Mm, yeah, it's really good. And I've heard you say that, you know, write yourself a letter. So with all these things. Yes. So to take those. So so you said, Alyssa, you, Alyssa, you said a few points there. What would you put into that letter? What would, in terms of the points that you've just described, you've got to acknowledge it first. And then secondly, you said to, what would you be saying? If What would that sadness say? And then what would you say mm-hmm. back to the sadness? Kind of three sort of levels or is there more that you would add or can you define that a little better than have I summarized that correctly? You summarized it correctly. And if they could also add, what would you say to validate that child's experience? Mm, And I love that. Yes. And, you know, we're all parenting ourselves in some way, right? We're all kind of, we're all Mm. learning as we go and we're all learning how to be better grownups and all of yeah, those things. Yeah. <laughs> it's all you the know? time. It never ends, does it? <laughs> it ne- never yeah, it ends. Never, and it, it shouldn't. Never, it shouldn't, no, should it? It should, no, be, it should be growing. We haven't even not, just like, not, not, now, boom, you've reached it. We've, we, we, yeah. As soon as you've reached it, then you just, you're not growing and, and that's unhealthy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an ever-evolving thing. <laughs> so I, I think it's important you just recognizing that you can reparent yourself and what can you say to that younger version of you as kind of like your own inner parent? What would your own inner parent say to that, to that child in that moment? Mm. So then you can recognize what you need. And then would you advise that person to take that letter once they've worked that out over time and, and, conf- and not confront? That's always, that's the wrong word. Maybe talk mm. to the parents. What next? What would be the next step after doing that letter? 
Yeah, I like that. I, I, I'm going to say that depends. It depends. Am I making you think sick. now? Am I making yeah, you think? Yeah, you they- are. <laughs> <laughs> it's critical thinking. <laughs> yeah, on the on the spot. <laughs> right. It, it, it depends if the parent is safe and the parent has the capacity to have a corrective experience with their child. And okay, I'm going good. to let, I want to let everybody know if they do decide to do that, you, you want to identify what is my purpose? Why am I doing this? What am I looking for by, by sharing it with the person? you know, who did this to me? What am I looking for? Mm. That thing that you're looking for, that thing thing that you're looking for, I'm looking for validation. I'm looking for love. I'm looking for, for a resolution. I want people to know that they can give that to themselves. I like that. Yeah. So you feeling like they need to, before they go and get the missing thing from the parent, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. realize that you've got the inner resilience to give it to yourself first. Yes. And yes. then, then where does then would you go to the parent if it's safe and if it's the right yeah. thing to do, to just yes. sort of almost what confirm the validation or just have it or just to get it out in the open and and kind of rebuild the relationship? What would your purpose be? Yeah, and I and I would think that the latter is very appropriate. You know, as human beings and especially dealing with trauma, we heal in the context of human relationships mm. and safe relationships. So being able to share somebody, hey, this is what it did, this is what it hurt me, and this is how I you know, this is something that I wrote up. And if that person is safe and can listen, that can be a very healing experience. You know, we call those corrective experiences. Mm. Yes. yes. Very corrective experience. But let's say worst case scenario, the person doesn't validate it. They don't, they don't understand it because you've already given that gift of validation to yourself. You'll still be okay. I love it. So if I've understood you correctly, you, you do this later, you, you, you then get to the second point where you want to now rebuild the relationship, maybe Mm -hmm. by going talk to the person or not, but you first validate yourself. So there's like, three steps or two steps before you actually get to the point of going to that person if that's the right thing because you, yes. you do run the risk of not getting the correct response back or the the response you need mm-hmm. back and mm-hmm. so you need to be strong enough in yourself and prepare yourself for that possibility am i am i understanding you correctly yeah that's absolutely okay. correct okay thank you and then and so then you go to the person and then you do whatever and you get the feedback and you you move forward but the big mm-hmm. thing is you validated it yourself so if you can get yeah. the corrective relationship wonderful but you've still you've got yourself in a place where you are able to deal with what whatever comes which is really yes. healthy where does forgiveness yes. play into this oh that's a good one where does forgiveness play into this so are you referring to the child forgiving the parent Yes, and yeah, probably, and and wherever, whatever it applies. I mean, it's on every level because very often a child who's been through a trauma or been through those little T's and landed up in the situation where they feel like they haven't been fathered or mothered mm-hmm. or something, there's that internal, mm-hmm. I did something wrong. So there's the forgiveness yeah. of self, there's the forgiveness of the parent, there's the forgiveness of the mm-hmm. situation, whatever, multiple levels. I, I know that a lot of people have different beliefs and theories on forgiveness. I do think that it is possible to... You know, you don't have to forgive the person who hurt you unless you want to, unless it's critical for your mm-hmm. healing journey. But I found that people don't don't necessarily need that. I think what's most important is forgiving yourself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Forgive, yeah, forgiving yourself for maybe the way you felt about yourself when that thing happened. Because oftentimes, when little teas happen to us, we blame ourselves. Yes, yeah, that does happen a lot. I'm sure you saw that a lot with your work with the with working with people in gangs and things like that. They kind of feel yeah. that they're not worthy. They have to forgive themselves. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's yeah, so, so true. It, it's that self-forgiveness. I forgive myself mm-hmm. for carrying this belief for so mm-hmm. long. Mm, I agree right? with you. I agree with you. That's so, and I think also the forgiveness with the person is like a disconnection almost. So if you forgive the person from quantum physics, which is 
which is kind of the work that I do as well in terms of understanding the spiritual. When you forgive, you're actually mm-hmm. disconnecting the relationship. Otherwise, you still have this invisible connection. So you don't, you don't, you don't forgive what they've done. I mean, what they've done, they have to deal with. You, you, you're not excusing, but you're, yes. dis- you're disconnecting. So you're protecting mm. kind of thing. Anyway, so that's just a, I find that interesting. I want to transition to another really amazing yeah. thing that you spoke about because it really resonated with me. I wrote a book a few years ago called The Perfect You, and it's basically understanding that your nature is perfect, but that we make choices and we don't always make the best choices because we can't control the events and circumstances of life. And we make wrong and we build it, wire and these toxic thoughts into an unconscious in our brain. And that impacts our, at the core of who we are, is this mm-hmm. perfect you. And I was really challenged because a lot of my audience are quite religious. And, but that's, for me, it was easy to say, well, okay, God, if we made in God's image and God, whatever God is, love, God is loveness, then we've got that as mm. our core. And as, as a quantum as quantum physics shows us, we wired for love, literally. So based on all of that, when I heard you say what you said, I thought, hey, there's someone else out there who gets this because it's been, <laughs> I've had many discussions with people about this where they don't quite know how to deal with the the years of being, and it's, it's, it's not just in religions, it's also a bit of a cultural thing where people are told at the core they're bad. And you, you challenged that in one of your podcasts. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I loved how you did that. Thank you. Yeah. So you're right. It's not just religions. It's a lot of like cultural pieces too, but oftentimes people from the moment they're born and into adolescence, they're being told by elders or their parents that they are bad or they were born a sinner and Mm. they have to do all of these things to seek forgiveness. And so, you know, you really just want to imagine what that does to a child's emotional Mm. psyche when they, when they're constantly feeling that they're, they're not good. We, we want to, we really want to let go of that belief. Mm. And, you know, it, it, I, I know a lot of people might not agree, but we have to let that go. I agree with you. I totally we agree have, with you. Mm. Yeah, we have to let that go because no person was born bad. In, inherently, we are all we are all inherently born good people. I agree with you. I agree with it. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a hope thing, isn't it? I mean, if you think, well, I'm born bad, so what's the point? It's, it kind of takes hope away. And when hope goes, people get mentally and physically sick and think, what's the point of it all? You know, it's mm-hmm. hope that drives. So I agree with you. So do you have to deal with that a lot in therapy? Is that a trend that you see quite often? It's not something that I see often, but it's definitely something that I've dealt with. And oftentimes I've dealt with it for people who have left certain religious communities or certain religious sects where they're really having to unlearn their views on themselves because their views on themselves were projections from other people, right? Because those mm. other people felt like I was born bad. I'm going to make you also believe that you were born bad wow. too. So it's a lot of unlearning because what comes with mm. that, what comes with that belief system and being raised with it is a lot of shame too. Mm. And shame is, you define the difference between shame and guilt very well. So just take that a little bit yeah. further. Yeah. So to simplify it, guilt is I did something bad and shame is I am bad. Mm. We don't yeah. want either of those emotions. We want no. to deal with, we want to, <laughs> no. we, they uh-huh. chains. I always talk about those, uh-huh. you know, chains. A lot of people do talk about shame and yeah. being chains. While learning mind management techniques is vital to cleaning up your mental mess, there are some other things you can do to help aid your healing journey. One thing you can do is incorporate CBD products. Recently, I have been feeling high levels of anxiety due to the current crisis and trying to finish a book on a tight deadline. So I knew I needed some extra help on managing stress and worry, and that's why I use Feels Premium CBD. Feels naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness, and has really made the world of difference in my life during this extra stressful time. I love how easy Feels is. 
You just place a few drops of feels under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. New to CBD? Feels offers a free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience. Join the Feels community to get Feels delivered to your door every month. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel at any time. Feels has me feeling my best every day and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash drleaf and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash Dr. Leaf to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash Dr. Leaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. So how do you help people get through shame and guilt? Because that's pretty common, that isn't it? Shame and guilt is a pretty common, yeah. It is, it is. And it's so visceral. Sometimes Mm. it's not even logical or rational. It's just a Mm. feeling you get in your body where you want to disappear and you want to hide and you just Mm. don't feel like you inherently belong in this earth or Mm. things like that. So how I get people work through that is I help them, you know, it goes back to trauma. I help them identify what were the experience in your life that led you to believe this was true. Mm. Yeah, we rationally talk about it too. Are Are there any situations that would disprove, you know, that you're not good or that you're bad and then just helping them see the other side of things mm. you know with shame and guilt there's so much cognitive restriction mm, it's a lot it of is. black and white yeah it's a lot of black and white right yeah i did this that means i'm bad so it's also helping clients develop some sort of cognitive flexibility very good yeah i love that mm-hmm. that's so important to have that cognitive flexibility to have a i call it a possibilities mindset so that you can Ooh. see all the different options you know that are out there because it's not so black and white nothing's so black it's and white. not we just yeah. so unique. It's one of the things that's come up in my clinical trial, which as it was a little bit of a challenge against the current, it's ever, I did a random control, mm-hmm. double blind, the whole, but we brought in single subject case study evaluations too, because not only do we look at a control group versus a experimental, and we see upward trends when you get your mind management, but what was interesting is that individual case study. So it's it's going back to the uniqueness of each person. You, there is no cookie cutter solution for any person. What we need is is yeah. to be able to, you know, and it's and the, the trend shows and the, the research clinically showed that the, the evidence, you can't take a little number, a bunch of numbers and, and deduct someone's behavior from that. And they say, okay, yeah. this is now the formula. So we've got to be careful of formulas, don't we, in terms of, yeah. of helping people. There's certain things that you can talk about reparenting and we can talk about the inner child. There's certain common words we can use, but what it looks like for an individual is so unique, isn't it? It really is, you know, something that I might say, hey, this is a great thing to do with your inner child. I might not recommend that to another person. It really mm. is unique for each person. You've got to let them yeah. sort of find, so you almost facilitate the process yeah. of letting them find the solution, which is so amazing. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm going to transition now to an article that you wrote yeah. that I found very interesting mm-hmm. about when it's time to, you said, I think it's seven or nine things that you, tips that you gave, you know what I'm talking about, when you which know, friendship, <laughs> the friendship one. I thought oh, that was yeah. fascinating. I thought that was really good because it's not addressed very often and you, I thought you handled that very well. So could we transition to that and talk about what are the signs to know when a friendship needs to be ended? Yeah. So that, that one I really enjoyed writing. And, you know, even when I posted it, there were so, there was so much feedback in the comments about it. And there were so many I can't imagine. I've actually got it. I've actually got it up here in front of me. I really enjoyed it, but you go, you, it was on Mind, Body, Green. They posted it on Mind, Body, Green. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good. Okay. Yeah. So many people were just, so many people were just like, this is happening in my friendship. And, you know, I really needed this validation to let me know that it's okay. Oftentimes people feel so guilty when they're ending a friendship. 
Yeah. And, and and there are a lot of reasons for it, right? Maybe it's a childhood friendship or maybe it's somebody who's really good at being there for you when you're in a crisis. But in other areas of your life, maybe they really haven't been there for you. And people oftentimes feel like they have to keep friendships going for whatever reason, even at the mm. expense of their own mental health. But I think there are very clear times where it's okay to say goodbye to somebody, you know? And, you know, some of those times where if that friend is beginning to compete with you, if they put you down in front of other people, if they've begun to be so unreliable and the friendship feels very one-sided, right? Mm -hmm. They only call you when they need something or they only call you when they're in a crisis. But if you need that emotional reciprocity, they disappear or or they're not there for you. You, you really find, you know, oftentimes we talk about healthy relation, romantic relationships, right? Mm -hmm. Relationship red flags. But I think that it's also important to talk about those types of healthiness and red and green flags in friendships too. I think it's really important yeah. you had because you had like some of the points you said they compete with you yeah. on various mm -hmm. aspects in life and struggle to be happy for you. Yes. You know, that's a that's a great because if people want measuring sticks, because mm -hmm. people like that, people want to know, well, how do I know when? Because as you said in the beginning, there's so much guilt mm -hmm. and shame that will mm -hmm. go around. Oh, I can't be friends. I just I can't be friends with this person. And there's all this thing. But how can you be friends since maybe since childhood or something? Yeah. But if, if someone is like you said, yeah, they compete with you on various aspects in life and struggle to be happy for you. That's a red flag. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, somebody had said in the comments, right, there's nothing wrong with a little competition between friends. And I want to clarify, that's correct. There's nothing wrong with a competition between friends. If I am, you know, running a half marathon with my friend, of course, I'm going to use that as measuring step, you know, like how, how fast I should go. The yeah. difference is both people know <laughs> it's a competition. Exactly. People, yeah. It, it, it It's consensual, right? Mm. It's consensual. This is almost like, this is when a friend is trying to one up you frequently. Mm. And, and oftentimes what comes with that is they're not, they're not proud of your successes. They're jealous. Yeah. But yeah. You sense mm. kind of like, there's a word for it. It's like a frenemy, right? Frenemy. So, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so, so you feel that, you know, you feel that when you share something great in your life, everybody has been really happy for you, except for this person that you really thought would, would be happy for you. They're not. Mm. Right. You, you, yeah, you sense this like silent, very passive aggressive competition and then it doesn't mm. feel good anymore. Mm. And and you'll sense that. I mean, they may not even say something, but it may be a look on their face or just their body language because nonverbal is fifty percent of communication. So it's, yes. it's we, we need to tune in because that really can affect you, especially because you're in a, entangled in a relationship with them. That's not healthy. So what do you mm -hmm. recommend in terms of, is, if, if, like you've got a whole lot of, you've got a few other tips too. Mm -hmm. You've got, they, they only call or ask, you You mentioned this one already, if they, to hang out when they need something or you dread seeing their name mm -hmm. pop up on your phone. I thought that was funny. They disrespect, yeah. or <laughs> they disrespect or violate your boundaries. Is it all of these, or as soon as one or two of them starts coming, start popping up, is it worth paying attention and watching for the others? It is. Yeah, it's absolutely, you don't have to have all nine of them, right? To say, okay, the friendship is over. You can have even just one. And it's, it's very important to do your due diligence and to really pay attention. Now, is this a consistent theme? Is this a one-time thing? But you also want to pay attention to this. How is this making me feel? Mm. How is my mental health? How is my mental health during and after spending time with this person, is there emotional reciprocity? Are you feeling more drained after? I like that. I like the fact that mm -hmm. if you're feeling that drained energy, if you're feeling discomfort, then there's definitely something that you, that's your unconscious sending a message to your subconscious and you need it. Your mm -hmm. conscious mind needs to start listening to that. So let's say you, these warning signs are now happening and maybe still four or five and it's been going on maybe for a few months. What, and then you just like 
realize I've got to end this friendship. Maybe right now someone's actually listening in and they're feeling, hey, I'm at that place. But now they're feeling such guilt about ending the friendship Mm -hmm. or they've just ended a friendship and they didn't quite know how to verbalize it like you verbalized it, but they now feel tremendous guilt about ending a friendship. How do they deal with that? Yeah. So we're going back to guilt, right? Guilt says I'm doing something wrong. And so it's so important to practice self-validation, right? Are you really, you want to question that, are you really doing something wrong? Mm. Is taking care of your mental health wrong? Is protecting your energy wrong? Is protecting your time wrong? I don't think it is, Mm. right? So so you want to acknowledge and you want to honor those feelings of guilt, but you also want to recognize that you're not doing anything wrong. Mm, That's really good. And so Mm -hmm. once once you validate and through the questioning, and recognize you're not doing anything wrong, but you're doing it for those reasons. If you give yourself the reasons, if mm-hmm. that feeling is still there, you re- what do you do? So do you carry on questioning? What's What do you still do if you're still feeling a bit bad? Or that person gets really upset with you. So now they cross mm-hmm. over a boundary because you speak about boundaries as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I think there's a misconception that people have to wait until they feel really confident in order to do something. I think that if the feelings of badness don't go away, it's still okay to do it with that like feeling that. alongside of you. Yeah. Because it's a process, isn't it? It's going to take a bit of time. I mean, I know from my research, it takes 21 days to build a long-term memory and 63 days to build a habit. 63 Mm -hmm. days. So we, people, and most people give up in about four days. So you can't just think, okay, I've done it today. I feel horrible today. I'm going to give up tomorrow. There's something wrong with me. Don't you think people tend to do that? There's a trend of, okay, I'm going to maybe break this friendship. I'm going to make this change in my life. Try it for two or three days, still feel bad. So then they think, oh, they must be wrong. So people don't know how to sit with the bad, do they? They don't know how to sit with the bad. And oftentimes, if they don't know how to sit with the bad, they create stories around the bad. Oh, I'm feeling this way because I wasn't supposed to do that. Or I'm feeling this way. That means I made a mistake. Ah, right? so what do they do? What do they do? Ooh. How do you, they, how they, do they handle it? <laughs> you know, if, if I, if, if I was their therapist, I would help them sit with, obviously help them sit with the feeling and identify, you know, what is this feeling saying and, and help them understand the narratives that they're creating around the feelings. Mm, okay. So to look yeah. at those narratives, so I still feel bad. What is the narrative? And maybe write that out and, and work around that. Brilliant advice. That's yeah. amazing. Do you have any, just to kind of wrap this up now, do you have any like pearls of wisdom advice that you'd like to give to people just kind of in closing or even Say there's something that concerns you about the current wellness industry, which is so massive, the self-help industry, if there's something that maybe concerns you or excites you. So how would you like to wrap up? Ooh, okay. So I, I want to say a couple of things, pillars Good. of advice for people, because we've talked about EMDR and we've talked about listening to the body. And you know, I want people to, to pay attention to the signals that their body is telling them when something doesn't feel right when a friendship doesn't feel right, or even when there's something that they've been suppressing in their lives, listen to what your body listen to what your body needs, you know, pay attention to it, honor and nurture your body through different ways. And, you know, when we talk about the wellness industry, I noticed that there are so many helping professionals on social media platforms. And I think that it is amazing. I also want people to scroll, to mindfully scroll, right? And, you know, take things that apply to you and things that don't apply to you. That's okay. You don't have you to know, take all the yeah. advice. You don't have to take all yeah. the advice because it can be overwhelming. Oh, I need to remember these five steps and those 10 steps and these three yeah. steps and I must do this. And you can yeah. get, get so overwhelmed by the good advice that's all good yeah. that you may just want to select one or two pieces and just follow yeah. those pieces. I like that. You know, there's so much free information out there and I think that is so amazing. But I also want people to know that they have you know, outside of all of that stuff, they already have it within them to do the things that they need to do to help themselves. 
Oh, that's beautiful. Oftentimes, yeah, oftentimes we look for other things to help us feel better. But I think, you know, what people don't know is that they have it. Oh, they I totally agree with you. I totally mm-hmm. agree. One, one of the things in this clinical trial, and I just wanted to share this with you because just to validate what you've just said, is when people recognize that, because the tech, I developed an app with my mind management techniques, which called Switch, which they use to, it's basically teaching people mind management. Okay. So when people validate, when people recognize it's inside of themselves, we see a burst of what we call theta energy in the, in the non-conscious mind, which reflects in the brain. And that's a healing wave of energy. When that wave of energy increases in size, in amplitude, gets bigger, you actually sense, you you have an inner sense of peace. So you may still be feeling bad mm-hmm. or uncomfortable or even still the glimmer of, you know, a bit of guilt or shame, but there's a sense of peace that dominates that. And yes. that's inside of us. So when you take dig down and find the resilience, well, yes. we've done the science to show it exists. As soon as you tap yeah. in, it's there. And it's a matter of, you know, just growing it and running with it. So thank you for what you do. It's just beautiful. And you filled with wisdom and Nice, clear, simple advice that's really good for people. And thank you for what you do. How can people find out more about you? They can look me up through my website, alyssamariewellness.com or Instagram, which is just alyssamariewellness. And if they're interested in reading any of my articles, they can go on Mind Body Green, type in my name, and then they can see just the different articles I've written on oh, relationships. Well, we'll put those those links in the show notes. So thank you so much. Thank you for your time and your wisdom. And it's been great getting to know you and talking to you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter, where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.